Reclaiming Our History, The African Burial Ground in New York, One Minute. This text appears on a dark green wall printed with an enlargement of a hand-drawn map. The Africans who helped build this city rest in sacred ground. You are standing where thousands of Africans buried their loved ones during the 1600s and 1700s. At that time, this land was a burial ground just outside the small settlement that became New York City. Slave traders forcibly brought these men, women, and children here from the Caribbean and Africa. From the time their bones and belongings were uncovered in 1991, their spirits have guided the rediscovery of this part of New York's history. To the right of the text, a brown and tan print of an aged hand-drawn map of Lower Manhattan with a red-orange circle over the center of the map where its handwritten label reads, Negro's Burial Ground. The Mareshock Plan, 1754. This is the first published map to show the Negro's Burial Ground, located beyond the city wall, or Palisades, near modern-day Chambers Street. Gathering at dusk to lay loved ones to rest, three and one-quarter minutes. This description matches the view of the burial scene in the center of the main exhibit space when your back is toward the information desk in the lobby. In this area, overhead speakers play the sounds of the burial depicted here. This circular space, 16 feet in diameter, is defined by four curved wall sections, each 7 feet wide by 8 feet high. The lower 3 and 1 half feet of each wall is solid, and the upper 4 and 1 half feet is glass, painted with a scene of additional mourners and the autumn landscape surrounding this burial. On the glass immediately to the left, an African man and boy stand with a lantern on the ground between them, a river at the horizon behind them. On the panel to the immediate right, two African men stand holding shovels at their sides. In the background, a tall wooden fence with small wooden buildings outside the fence. Across the 16-foot circular space at the left, the glass shows an African girl holding the hand of an African woman with a lantern. At her side, an African man looks to the right toward a filled-in grave outlined with light-colored stones. On the panel to the right, two African women stand, a lantern at their feet, near another grave outlined with stones. In the background, a tall wooden fence with large wooden buildings outside the fence. The open space between the wall sections provides four equally spaced, eight-foot-wide entrances to the scene. Above these walls, the space is further defined by two-foot-deep curved sage-green panels suspended to display the backlit words of the spiritual dry bones. Some of those bones are my mother's bones, come together to rise and shine. Some of those bones are my father's bones, and some of those bones are mine. Some of those bones are my sister's bones, come together to rise and shine. Some of those bones are my brother's bones, and some of those bones are mine. You are welcome to go inside this circular space established by the wall sections to explore and touch the elements of the scene. Benches line the inside of three of the walls. With your back to the information desk in the lobby, you are facing an entrance between two wall sections at 6 o'clock. The benches are at 8 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 2 o'clock. The inside of the fourth wall provides open space for visitors using wheelchairs at 10 o'clock. If you would like to hear the description of the recreated burial scene, remain where you are and press 103. At either end of the benches, 
wooden bins hold removable boards printed on both sides with information about funerals and burials from the late 1600s to 1794. If you would like to hear the information printed on the removable panels, press 104. Again, if you want to hear the audio description for the burial scene itself, press 103. If you want to hear the information printed on the removable boards, press 104. The Atlantic World, 1 and 3 quarters minutes. Above a freestanding 7-foot-wide wall with a map of the continents surrounding the Atlantic Ocean, a sign with this quotation. Remember the rock from whence we were hewn. Reverend Absalom Jones, January 1st, 1808. On the freestanding wall, a six-foot-wide by five-foot-tall map of the dark brown Atlantic Ocean in the center, with North, Central, and South America at the left in blue, Europe at the upper right in blue, and Africa at the center right in golden orange. Thirty-two coastal cities in Africa are marked as the points of embarkation, and 21 cities in the Americas and 10 in Europe are marked as arrival points in the 1750s. The transatlantic slave trade dispersed millions of Africans around the world, creating far-flung communities, a diaspora. Thousands were brought to New York City alone between the 1600s and the early 1800s. Their skills and labor and that of their descendants built the city and its wealth. Against the cream-colored border of the map, in shades of brown, there are 30 head-and-shoulder drawings of African men and women, reproduced from sources dated between 1816 and 1861. The men have short hair, while the women are equally divided between having short hair, long hair pinned up, and hair covered with scarves or wraps. Two-thirds of the women and several of the men wear earrings. The faces of some of the men are marked by thin line scars in decorative patterns, and the faces of others have wide stripes of light paint. Africa was, and is, home to a variety of cultures, four and one-half minutes. This 14-foot-wide display area features a photographic background mural, and in front of that, a black, three-foot-deep, slanted display platform, its front edge eight inches above the floor. The mural shows a blue sky with gray and white clouds, palm trees along a sandy beach, and a rippling expanse of blue-gray water. At the center, on top of the background, a map of Africa shows each country in one of six different colors and points of departure labeled in black letters. Captive Africans taken to the Americas in the transatlantic slave trade came from the peoples named on the map, primarily on the west coast of Africa. To the right of the map, a black sign provides an overview of this display. African captives brought their skills from home to these shores. Many Africans brought to New York were captured or traded from Western and Central Africa between present-day Senegal and Angola. Every person held captive identified strongly with the unique kingdom, society, language, and religion of his or her home. In Africa, people had honed skills that supported their native culture, music, bronze work in Benin, basket making in Mali, goldsmithing in Ghana. In New York, Many were forced by slaveholders to do work that wasted their skills. Despite the turmoil the transatlantic slave trade caused, African artists and craftspeople continued to create the objects you see here. At the far left, in front of the photo mural, five pieces of cloth are displayed. 
Hanging from above, at the left, a greenish-blue cloth printed with dark-blue geometric shapes, a dairy cloth from Nigeria. In front of this, and to the right, a stitched-together patchwork of striped woven sections of kente cloth from Ghana, in yellow, green, gold, dark red, blue, and black. Behind this, and to the right, a coarse black cloth with hand-painted zigzag geometric stripes, X shapes, and dots, Kuba cloth from the Republic of Congo. At the left, below the hanging fabric, lying flat on a small flat box at table height, a folded piece of a dinkra cloth from Ghana. This dark yellow gold fabric is in one foot wide strips, bound together with two inch stitches of blue, yellow, and red threads, and printed with dark brown lines, serpentine shapes, gear like circle shapes, and the words Kasekona. To the right of the box, standing upright, is a patchwork square of brown and tan fabric, appliqued with squiggle shapes in pale orange and dark tan, Bogolanfini cloth from Mali. On the display platform, below the cloth, two color photographs. At the left, working on a loom outdoors, a bare-chested, bare-legged Kuba man weaves raffia cloth. To the right, women, boys, and a young man at a fabric market in Kumasi, Ghana, where many bolts of colorful cloth stand upright on a rough table. One woman walks with eight pieces of folded, brightly colored patterned fabric stacked 18 inches high on her head. To the right, in front of the slanted display platform, a small golden yellow shelf stands two and one-half feet above the floor, displaying a four-inch wide and two and one-half inch tall touchable sculpture of a man with a pointed hat playing a xylophone-like instrument with large mallets. Asante gold weight. This artistic piece isn't gold. It's a bronze weight that goldsmiths use to weigh gold. They cast the weights in a standard range of sizes. Five feet to the right, a similar display shows a six-inch wide and seven-inch tall touchable sculpture mounted to its backboard. Three skirted and barefooted warriors stand side by side, carrying weapons. The men on either end wear helmets with knobs on top, and the center figure has a square headdress. The figures at the left and right hold long broadswords in their hands at the outer edges of the sculptures. The handles stick up above their hands, and the blades point downwards at their sides. The warrior at the right holds a spear in his hand closest to the center figure, with its point down near his foot. The center figure holds a long, wide knife at the side of his head. Benin Palace Wall Panel This is a replica of a 19th-century bronze panel from the palace wall of the Oba, or Divine Ruler, of the Kingdom of Benin in present-day Nigeria. Above the display platform, behind the two freestanding bronze sculptures, dozens of colorful small flags of countries of the African diaspora hang from the ceiling. On the slanted display platform behind the two sculptures, a shallow glass case houses 14 artifacts and three color photos from West Africa. To hear about these items, you may press 105. Peter San Tome, three and one half minutes. At this seven foot wide display against a photographic background of a forest of trees and green leaves, to the right stands a cutout figure of an African man, five and one-half feet tall. He is wearing a full collarless white shirt, its sleeves rolled up, 
salmon-colored knee breeches, and black stockings and brown shoes. With both hands, he raises a long-handled axe in front of him higher than his head. Text appears on the background and on three black signs. Peter Santomé was one of the first captive Africans brought here by the Dutch West India Company to clear land for the settlement of New Amsterdam. His Portuguese name suggests he may have come from São Tomé, a Portuguese-ruled island off the coast of West Africa. Peter arrived here in New Amsterdam around 1625. After years of being enslaved, he was granted land through his appeal for freedom in December 1644. Eleven enslaved Africans in servitude to the Dutch West India Company landed in New Amsterdam in 1625. Many more would follow. In 1664, British troops take control of New Amsterdam, renaming it New York. Conditional freedom was not true freedom. Each African child born here remained enslaved. For nearly 20 years, Peter Santomé was the property of the Dutch West India Company. He and 10 other men petitioned the company for, and were granted, freedom in 1644. This freedom, however, was conditional. Freed Africans had to support themselves and pay the company in crops and livestock. Their babies were born into slavery. Older children remained enslaved. Under the new system, the company no longer supported those who grew old, but kept full property rights to the young. The company grants farmland to Africans. Perhaps the burial ground was used by these farmers and their families around this time. In the 1640s, the Dutch West India Company had to rethink its strategy to make the colony successful. They granted unused farmland to Africans like Peter, with the condition that the enslaved people would work for the company on demand. Perhaps these farms at the northern edge of town provided a buffer to protect the small Dutch settlement from retaliation by groups of Lenape Indians. The first Africans may have been laid to rest at the burial ground, located near the farms, about this time. At the left side of the display, a book with six 8.5 by 11-inch plasticized pages is mounted on a stand 2.5 feet above the floor. On one of the pages of the book, the Last Will and Testament of Solomon Peters, 1694. This rare will belongs to Solomon Peters, the second son of Peter Santomé. Born into slavery, Solomon petitioned the Dutch for his freedom, which was granted in 1664. Thirty years later, he created a will, the only one in existence prepared by an African in early New York. The backward S ink mark to the left of the red blot is his signature. It was likely that he could not write. In the name of God, 30 November, 1694, I, Solomon Peters, leave to my wife, Maria Antonia Portuguese, all my houses, lands, and household goods as long as she lives. If she should happen to die, then to my four daughters. But if she remarries, she is to have one half and the rest to my children. Andrew Saxon, Four Minutes. At this 12-foot-wide exhibit, there are three displays in front of a dark blue background covered by black line drawings of three large ships with tall sails and several smaller ships. A dark green half-wall, four feet tall, stands several feet in front of the background, with a four-foot-wide opening at the center. Text is printed on the background and on three black signs. As more enslaved people are shipped here, the African population swells. 
With the economy in recession, European laborers fear for their jobs. Ships were laden with heavy cargo. African men's lives were cut short working on the docks. Enslaved men filled or emptied the ships of sugar, rum, tobacco, and other cargo, goods made by other enslaved people throughout the Americas. Even though the men were hired out, slaveholders pocketed the wages. All day, the men loaded and unloaded, bending under heavy loads, carrying barrels, boxes, and crates of goods. They were worked to death. Their muscles, spines, and joints wore out while they were still young. Many died in their mid-thirties. Slaveholders and merchants arrange a labor system. African men are hired at a day labor market. Sometimes, slaveholders made money hiring out their strongest men to do the heavy work on the docks and shipyards along the East River. Skilled craftsmen such as coopers like Andrew Saxon, carpenters, and painters were hired out as well. The businessmen who ran the docks used these Africans on an as-needed basis without having to pay for their food and clothing. Every morning, a day labor market operated at the foot of Wall Street. This practice made it difficult for the Africans to find paying work on their own without their slaveholders' knowledge. At the center, a wooden barrel rests on a short wooden ramp to demonstrate the weight of the loads dock workers handled. Mounted on its side, the barrel sits three feet wide by two and one half feet tall. You may place your hands on the front of the barrel and push it up the ramp toward the background. Imagine working on the docks, loading and unloading barrels all day. A 50-gallon barrel full of rum, like this one, would have weighed over 400 pounds. At the right, a cutout figure of an African man, six feet tall, wearing a full collarless white shirt, ruffles around its collar and down its center front, with the sleeves rolled up, a tan leather apron over green knee breeches. He raises a wooden mallet with his right hand and holds steady an upright barrel with his left hand. Andrew Saxon, 1733. We know Andrew Saxon from news of his escape in 1733. Slaveholder Jacobus Van Cortland ran an ad offering reward for Andrew's return in the New York Gazette on October 1st. Andrew, though described as tall and lusty, is physically disabled, walks stooping and somewhat lameish. His left hand was wounded, and he has lost some of the motion in his thumb. Archaeologists saw evidence of work-related physical trauma like Andrew's in many burials. Andrew escaped Van Cortland, taking tools with him, most likely to find paid employment as a skilled barrel maker or cooper. At the far left of this 12-foot-wide display, near the background, a flat, two-layered wheel, two and one-half feet in diameter, stands upright. When visitors turn the wheel and back, one by one, five pieces of information about working on the docks during Andrew Saxon's time appear in the eight-inch circle cut in the front dark orange wheel. To hear the information on the wheel, press one zero six. If you would like to go to the exhibit after the wheel, go to the left of the wheel to the exhibit featuring Belinda, a domestic worker, and press one zero seven. Peter Williams, Sr. Three minutes. At this twelve-foot-wide exhibit, against a background of a muted gray and tan drawing of a colonial street with eight men standing in front of two ornate buildings, text is printed on the background and on three black signs attached to the background. At the left side of the display, a ten-page book with eight and one-half by eleven-inch plasticized pages is mounted on a stand two and one-half feet above the floor. 
To the right of the book stands a cutout figure of an African man with black and gray hair, five and one-half feet tall, wearing a white shirt and loose bow tie, a buttoned pale blue coat cut at the waist and with knee-length tails and back, light tan-colored knee breeches, and black knee-high boots. From the text on the background and on the signs. By the end of the 1700s, New York has, for the first time, more free Africans than enslaved. As the state-by-state fight over slavery begins in the new nation, African leaders emerge and take action. Peter Williams Sr., 1749-1823, was enslaved by tobacconist James Amer, a British loyalist. Just before Amer sailed to England to avoid the Revolutionary War, Peter asked the John Street Methodist Church to buy him. He worked off his purchase price as a gravedigger and caretaker for the church. Once free, Peter worked as a tobacconist and cigar maker and founded, with other dissatisfied parishioners, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1796. He and his wife, Mary Durham, had a son, Peter Williams Jr., who became an influential church leader in the early 1800s. As British troops occupied New York during the Revolutionary War, thousands of enslaved Africans escaped to the city. They hoped to gain freedom by enlisting with the British, who promised emancipation in return for their loyalty. Though many Africans fought on the British side, some fought on the side of the colonists. Following the Revolution, the long fight over slavery in the new nation began state by state. By 1799, New York lawmakers had passed the Gradual Emancipation Law, which began the slow process of freeing enslaved men, women, and children from bondage. After the Revolutionary War, New York felt different from 10 years before. The population swelled with free Africans who had fought for the British and the colonists. These Africans and their descendants worked to create better lives for themselves by learning to read and sharing written information. New leaders like Peter Williams Sr., William Hamilton, and Thomas Downing emerged. They gathered together to form African churches, businesses, schools, and mutual aid societies, like the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, to help those in need. To hear about the images and text in the book at the left side of the display, press 108. Or the next exhibit about Mary, an agricultural worker, is behind you. Once you move to it, press 109 to hear its description. African Lives Timeline, one and one-half minutes. This five-foot-wide by four-foot-tall wall panel has a background of thin vertical strips of brown and olive green, a wide vertical section of rust, and a thin vertical strip of French blue. Across the top of the panel are small reproductions of the people seen as cutout figures in other exhibits. Just below the people, a band of dark green spans the panel with pale yellow numbers noting the historic periods on top of each of the colored background sections. Below, cream-colored text notes significant events of the 100-year eras. Highlights of these include 1697. New York's early public cemetery, taken over by Trinity Church, bans African burials. 1713. Reverend John Sharp describes Africans being buried by those of their own country or complexion in the common field outside town. This is the first time the African burial ground appears in writing. 1722. New York passes a law banning African burials after sunset. 1745. The town builds a tall cedar log wall for defense 
cutting across the burial ground. Mourners must pass through a gate to get from the town to burial ground. 1773. Trinity Church opens a cemetery for its African members. 1795. New York City's northward growth closes the African burial ground, and a new cemetery opens for blacks at Christie Street. Cuffy, three and one half minutes. The floor space of this exhibit alcove is 12 feet wide by 6 feet deep. Text appears on black signs and printed directly on the display walls. As you enter the alcove, a pale yellow clabbered wall intersects with a painted street scene and presents this text Enslaved Africans and free blacks' social lives went on underground. Most enslaved Africans were not permitted to live in permanent family groups, but they created ways to visit one another and share good news and bad. At this corner stands a cutout figure of an African man. Six feet tall, wearing an off white brimless cap, a long sleeve collarless buttoned off white jacket, pale gold knee breeches, white stockings, and black shoes. Cuffy, 1741. Cuffy was a literate man who played the fiddle and understood Spanish. Although enslaved by Adolph Phillips, Speaker of the New York General Assembly, he spent time at Hewson's Tavern drinking with friends. Cuffy was identified as the Negro jumping out of a window and over garden fences during a spate of fires. Hunted down at the Phillips home, Cuffy was burned alive on May 30, 1741, for wickedly, voluntarily, feloniously, and maliciously conspiring with quack and diverse other Negroes to kill and murder the inhabitants of this city. On the long wall to the left of Cuffy, The street scene background continues with flames and sparks shooting out of a building's first and second floor windows. After an attempted revolt by Africans in 1712, white New Yorkers fear uprisings and pass restrictive laws. Later news of rebellions elsewhere inspires some enslaved New Yorkers and terrifies their owners. Attempted and successful rebellions were frequent throughout the American colonies. In particular, a successful overthrow of the British by black Jamaicans in 1739 spread waves of anxiety to New York. In 1741, fear of armed rebellion gripped New York after a burglary and series of fires were rumored to be a plot by enslaved Africans to overthrow the colonial powers. Moving toward the next corner on the end wall of the alcove, A four foot wide by six foot tall reprint of the City of New York law for regulating Negroes and slaves in the nighttime fills the space. This text is posted on a sign. Oppressive laws fail to crush resistance. Laws reflect the fears of Europeans. Conditions were intolerable for enslaved Africans. Despite the constant threat of being charged with conspiracy, they found ways to defy their enslavement daily. Some disregarded the laws. Others balked, refused to move quickly, feigned illness, sabotaged equipment, or pretended not to understand orders. Some emerged as leaders, demanding humane treatment. Slavery in New Amsterdam developed without clearly defined laws. Once the British took over the city in 1664 and expanded the slave trade, any hint of revolt evoked extreme oppression. Turning the corner, the next wall provides an enlarged advertisement seeking runaway enslaved Africans. Below the advertisement, an eight page book with eight and one half by eleven inch plasticized pages is mounted on a stand two and one half feet above the floor, with eight additional ads which appeared between 1735 and 1754. 
a list of colonial and city laws between 1861 and 1788, which affected Africans in New York, is printed on the left end of the wall. To hear excerpts from this list, press 110. The Slave Trade, one and three quarters minutes. Overhead, this backlit quotation on a two-foot-deep curved sage-green panel. O Africa, Africa, to what horrid inhumanities have thy shores been witness? Peter Williams, Jr., January 1st, 1808. Against the wall, there is a six-foot-wide by four-foot-tall reproduction of a dark, black-and-white illustration. Across the top and bottom of the panel are bands of charcoal-gray background marked with sweeping light-gray, wave-like swirls. Across the center of the panel, about two feet high, is a drawing of 18 crouching African men and women packed together in a tight space. Thin, light-colored bands encircle most of their visible ankles. Below, on a slanted gray-green panel, five feet wide and one foot tall, its front edge two and one-half feet above the floor, at the left end, a touchable reproduction of dark silver-colored iron shackles. Across the top, a rod 12 inches from side to side, and attached below, two U-shaped wrist cuffs. Shackles like these were used by slave traders to manage the men on board ships bound for the Americas and the Caribbean. To the right of the shackles, this is one of the three quotations printed on the panel. They then came to us in the reeds, and the very first salute I had from them was a violent blow on the head with the fore part of a gun, and at the same time a grasp around the neck. I then had a rope put about my neck. Venture Smith, 1789. At the right half of the panel, a plexiglass case, two feet long and ten inches tall, displays a string of beads alternating between translucent glass, ivory-colored, and deep coral-colored beads. Below this, a single mottled grayish-tan clay bead, one and one-quarter inches tall and one and three-quarters inches in diameter. In the right half of the case, there are three iron bracelets, three-quarters round of varying thicknesses. Slave traders used metal and beads to enslave African people. Europeans and Africans bartered with metal bands called manilas and beads like these. If you move to a display wall 10 feet to the left, there's a map depicting the transatlantic slave trade. You may hear its description by pressing 1-1-1. If you move to a display wall 10 feet to the right, there are four reproductions of early images of the slave trade. You may hear their description by pressing 1-1-2. Burial number 101, three and one-half minutes. This small exhibit on pale aqua walls presents its content on a four-foot-wide wall and its introductory text on a one-foot-wide wall to the right, set at an angle. Burial number 101. Each burial has its own story. What was life like for the man in burial 101? Biologists, historians, and anthropologists look for clues asking different questions. The answers don't always agree, but each reveals part of the puzzle. The major feature of the four-foot wall is a painted cream-colored shape of a six-foot-tall coffin, a dark brown outline drawing of an adult skeleton on top of the coffin shape, and then on top of this, a matching, touchable, coffin-shaped piece of plexiglass raised three inches above the painted skeleton. The plexiglass is marked with rounded, silver-colored tacks in a loose, heart-shaped pattern. 
At the left of the coffin shape, mounted on the pale aqua background, are three horizontal signs, each with a color photo and text. On the first, the photo provides a close-up of two teeth and an upper jawbone, filed to flatten the front to slope down to a thin bottom edge. This man had filed teeth, which could mean he spent his childhood in Africa, where filing teeth was common in some cultures. But the chemical composition of the teeth does not confirm whether he was born in Africa or America. The middle sign shows the worn lid of a wooden coffin marked with pale orange tacks in a heart shape. Look to the past to understand the present. A con proverb. The heart-shaped design in tacks raised questions when archaeologists saw it on a coffin lid. It could be a Sankofa symbol linked to this West African Akan proverb, but no one knows for sure. The bottom sign displays two photos of horizontal sections of lower leg bones. The bone in the upper photo is bowed upward, and a portion of the upper center is flat. The lower bone is straight and rounded. Saber shin, a flattening and bowing of the shin bone, or tibia, tells us that this man probably suffered from yaws, a tropical disease common in Africa and the Caribbean in the 1700s. It is likely that he spent some time in the tropics before he was transported here. To the right of the coffin shape, there are two vertical signs. The upper sign's photo depicts the back of a skull with an obvious horizontal ripple-like ridge near the base. This man worked extremely hard. Look at the thickened ridge where his shoulder and neck muscles connected to the back of his head. When muscles are heavily stressed, as with constant lifting, bony attachments begin to grow, forming ridges like these. The lower sign has a close-up photo of a section of bone marked by deep horizontal ridges looking like ruts on tree bark. The deep ridges on the outer layer of the shin bone are the result of periostitis, a painful condition suffered by over half of those buried here. It's often caused by infection and sometimes by injury. Six feet to the left, a honey-colored wooden cabinet that sits flush with the wall houses reproductions of items found in some of the burials. Once you move to the cabinet, press 117 to hear its description. The Site Two and one half minutes. At the left on this exhibit wall, a black sign introduces the exhibit. Archaeologists examined the entire site where 290 Broadway now stands, but burials were only found in the area shown in red. All others had already been destroyed over the years by construction of earlier buildings on the site. There are, however, still burials beneath the African Burial Ground National Monument. Congress stopped the excavation of that area in 1992 due to public protest. It is here that the excavated burials were reburied in 2003, and where unknown numbers of burials still lie under a deep layer of dirt. Thousands more lie within the estimated historic boundary of the African burial ground. To the right, a detailed map, six feet wide and four feet tall, shows the location of each of the excavated burials. Color-coded to show the burial sites of men, women, children, and undetermined graves, a clear acrylic overlay provides orange lines and circles to highlight specific areas with orange panels with cream-colored text to offer explanations. At the end of this recorded segment, you will have the option to hear the description of the detailed information provided on the overlay. To the right, on a three-foot-wide bluish-purple wall set at an angle, 
Two graphs depict the ages of death at the African burial ground and European versus African death rates in colonial New York. The graph on the left indicates most of the children buried in the African burial ground died before the age of two. Probably many more infants died than were actually found because their soft bones disappeared quickly into the soil. If an African child living in enslavement made it past two, he or she was likely to live to adulthood. Death came early, though, usually between 30 and 45 years old. Women usually died at younger ages than men. The graph on the right compares data from the African burial ground with data from the Trinity Churchyard, the cemetery of New York's oldest English church. It shows that European men and women buried there lived to an old age up to 10 times more often than did the Africans they held in bondage. Despite the spike in death of English in their mid-20s, the death rate overall for young adult Africans was much higher. If you'd like to hear the description of the detailed information provided on the overlay to the map of the burials, press 113. If you would prefer to go to the next exhibit, move past the wall with the two graphs and go past a three-foot-wide open space. You'll come to a nine-and-one-half-foot-wide by six-foot-tall backlit mural showing over 400 small photographic images of each of the burials uncovered at the African burial ground. Once you are there, press 114 to hear the description. Rediscovery Timeline and Mural four and one quarter minutes. Overhead, this backlit quotation on a two foot deep curved sage green panel. You may bury me in the bottom of Manhattan. I will rise. My people will get me. I will rise out of the huts of history's shame. Maya Angelou, October 4th, 2003. Along this gently curved display wall, a photographic mural, 17 feet wide and nine and one-half feet tall, shows nine smiling black children holding hand-lettered signs with messages like, To our beautiful African brothers and sisters, we honor you, and may your spirit live on forever. In front of and across the middle of the mural, four and one-half feet above the floor, a black band 16 feet wide and seven inches tall spells out the timeline of the rediscovery of the African burial ground from 1989 to 2010. 1989. Before excavation begins for a new building at 290 Broadway, researchers conduct a General Services Administration survey and find records showing an African burial ground beneath the site. They assume that after 200 years there are no remains, but recommend archaeological testing. 2010. The African Burial Ground Visitor Center opens. Mounted on stands two and one-half feet above the floor, five scrapbooks with eight and one-half by 11-inch plasticized pages document the rediscovery of the African burial ground. At the end of this description segment, you will have the option to hear highlights of the information provided on the timeline and the materials included in the scrapbooks. To the right of the scrapbook at the far left, on a stand two and one-half feet high, sits a touchable handmade mahogany coffin, two feet long, one foot wide and one foot deep. The top of the coffin, whose sliding lid is open five inches at the right, is three and one-half feet above the floor. Inside the coffin, the sides are lined with kente cloth in yellow, green, gold, dark red, blue, and black stripes, and the bottom is covered with a shiny silver-gray fabric. Rope handles are at both ends. The stylized carving on the top of the coffin 
depicts a man at the left facing a tree with three branches and leaves in the center and a woman at the right who also faces the center tree. The man's hair is set in a pattern of waves and his cheekbones and lips are prominent. He wears a pack on his back and wears a sleeveless top and pants. He carries a wide upright club in his right hand. The woman bears a vessel on top of her cloth-wrapped head and her face has a prominent nose, lips, and chin. Below her bare shoulders, her body is wrapped in fabric that's gathered above her hips and back. She carries a walking stick in her left hand. On the front side of the coffin, the carving portrays a tree with three branches and leaves at the left, and at the center and right, two women from the waist up, facing left. They are bare-shouldered with their bodies wrapped in cloth, and they carry vessels on their heads which are covered with scarves or head wraps. From the sign in front of the coffin. The remains of every man, woman, and child found during the excavation of the African burial ground were laid to rest again in coffins like this one. The coffins were commissioned by the General Services Administration at the request of the descendant community. They were made by artists and carpenters in Accra and Aburi, Ghana, using figurative designs and Adinkra symbols of the Akan people. To hear highlights of the information provided on the timeline, press 119, or to hear about the materials included in the scrapbooks, press 120. You may listen to both segments if you wish, and you may listen to them in any order. That's 119 for the timeline and 120 for the scrapbooks. African presence enriches the culture of New York. Four and one quarter minutes. On the glass front of this four foot wide, seven foot tall showcase, this quotation appears in orange letters. We assume our place beside the waters while we live, for we go beneath the waters when we join the realm of the ancestors. Duoti Desir, Mambo Asogwe. Inside the showcase at the left, a black sign provides this introduction. Offering libations, a sacred tradition. The act of pouring libation, pouring liquid on the ground to mark an important event, is sacred tradition in some African societies. Giving the ancestors this first taste of drink is a way to honor them, thank them, and ask for their guidance. Since the site's rediscovery in 1991, hundreds of descendants and others who want to pay homage have come here to pour libation, the ceremony that connects the living with the dead and nourishes the spirit. On the same sign, there is a photo of an African man wearing a white shirt and pants and many beaded necklaces seated on the ground in front of a makeshift outdoor shrine. A Yoruba priest pours water at a shrine at the African burial ground during the 1992 excavation. On the orange background of the showcase, there are two additional photos. In the upper one, a black and white photo, three men and two women of African descent observe an older African man pouring a stream of liquid from a bottle held at chest height. We call on the spirits of our ancestors so that their spirits will be awakened and come join us said Niadote Mofat, member of the National House of Chiefs of Ghana, at the African burial ground in 1995. The lower photo is a close-up of two carved coffins, gray rope poles protruding from their ends, a red, green, and yellow fabric rose-like flower on top of the coffin at the right. A brown-skinned hand lightly touches the end of that coffin. While official prayers are usually offered by elders, priests, and clerics, anyone can leave an offering. In 2003, 
visitors placed offerings of flowers, fruit, and bottles of water on the ancestors' coffins before they were lowered into the ground at the reinterment ceremony. Resting on the black floor of the showcase, on a yellow-gold box-like platform, two feet wide by one foot deep by one foot tall, there are five items at the back and two at the front. At the back, from left to right, a tall, slender, clear glass vase with a bouquet of pink, red, and white artificial flowers, a short frosted glass vase holding four sticks of incense, a white candle, an empty clear glass bottle, a short clear glass bottle of clear liquid. At the front, at the left, a gray-green ceramic plate bearing U.S. coins, paper money, and a metro card. At the right, a dark brown short woven bowl contains several thin strands of red, blue, and rust beads and a handful of cowrie shells. To the right of the showcase, just around the corner on a yellow gold wall, is an orange background which surrounds a seven foot wide by four and one half foot tall mural of 38 individual photographs divided by purple borderlines. The photos show people of African descent indoors and outdoors, at work and at play, in recreational activities, living everyday life, celebrating at marches, street fairs, and sporting events, dressed in marching band uniforms and dance costumes, business and casual attire, and traditional African dashikis and robes. On a sign posted on the wall to the left, African presence enriches the culture of New York. African, Caribbean, and Latino immigrants join generations of descendants. Rediscovery of the African burial ground alerted the city and the world to New York's early history and the African people who worked and lived here. The burial ground is the final resting place for ancestors from many African and African-descended cultures. Most are still represented in the city today. A thriving population of African descendants call New York home. Speaking out computer interactive, two minutes. You have reached a touchscreen computer interactive titled Speaking Out, which features short video interviews with a dozen people talking about what the African burial ground means today. The bottom of the screen is three feet from the floor. Once you start the program, the menu screen introduces 12 people interviewed and allows you to select one. After you make a choice, the second screen displays that person's brief video interview. Most of the speakers have multiple interview segments. Once you choose a speaker, all of his or her interview segments will play. You do not need to touch the screen. Each new segment will be introduced with the speaker's name and the next segment's topic. If you wish to choose to go to another speaker at any time, you may touch the upper right corner of the interview screen to return to the menu screen. The menu screen displays, at right of center, a large color head and shoulders photo of one of the people interviewed, and at left of center, an ivory colored square with black text identifying the person. To move forward or backward through the dozen people who have been interviewed, touch the bottom right or bottom left of the screen. To see a video interview with the person currently displayed, touch the bottom center of the screen. The video that appears will show the person speaking and will have open captions along the bottom edge of the screen. To return to the main menu, touch the upper right corner of the screen at any time. Once you've returned to the menu, you may touch the bottom right or left of the screen to review the 12 people interviewed and then touch the bottom center to select a speaker. To repeat how to operate this program, touch the upper left corner of any menu screen. 
touch the upper right corner of the screen to go to the menu screen and begin. Reflections on the African Burial Ground, one and one half minutes. In this area, there is an eight foot wide by four and one half foot tall glass enclosed bulletin board, which displays handwritten comments of visitors to the African Burial Ground. At the left end of the bulletin board, you may take a card from the slanted top shelf to write your own comment and then deposit it in the slot in the box to the left of the shelf. As you face the bulletin board, behind you is a solid nine foot wide half wall, three and one half feet high, that's topped with a four and one half foot tall sheet of glass, etched to reveal a pattern of heart-shaped Sankofa designs in clear glass. Facing the bulletin board, Two and one half feet beyond the bulletin board at the right end of this exhibit area, the wall is covered with a six foot wide by nine foot tall mural of photos of 12 of the scenes painted by over 1,000 New York children and adults to hang on the fence surrounding the African burial ground in the early 1990s. All brightly colored, the panels include images of Africans in traditional headdresses, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Dutch colonies along the Hudson River in the 1600s, enslaved Africans linked together by yokes, farms and farm workers, a patchwork of images and text noting historic milestones, the Statue of Liberty, burning houses, and a community of homes labeled Bed-Stuy. 101 Audio Description Introduction 4 and 3 quarters minutes Welcome to the audio description tour of the African Burial Ground Visitor Center. To begin, let's explore the operation of your audio description receiver and the key features of the Visitor Center. Most visitors use the neck strap to wear their receivers around their necks, with the controls facing their chests for easy access. There are 16 buttons on the receiver. At the top left and right are touchpads that control the volume. Left lowers the volume and right raises it. Between the two touchpads are two round buttons. The upper is the stop button, and the lower is the replay button. Pressing either button will stop a description. To restart a stop description, or to replay a description that you've just heard, press the lower replay button. Below this are 12 buttons arranged like a telephone keypad. The 5 key is at the center, with raised vertical marks at either side of it. The lower left button, where a telephone's star key is located, and the lower right button, a telephone's pound key, are not used for this tour. You will hear audio description segments in two ways. First, when you approach most exhibits, their primary descriptions will play automatically. Second, some descriptions will end by telling you how to hear more about that exhibit by entering a three-digit number on the keypad. To repeat this introduction, or any other descriptions immediately after they have played, simply press the replay button, which again is the second button down from the top of your receiver. You may choose from two hours of recorded descriptions of major features of the visitor center. This is not a detailed mobility guide. If you are accompanied by a sighted guide, we recommend that you both listen and move through the exhibits together. The visitor center is 90 feet long from north to south, 50 feet wide from east to west, and has 10 and one half foot high black ceilings. There are seven basic areas to the visitor center. This lobby, a bookstore, a theater, 
and four exhibit areas which flow from one to the other. The exhibit areas are the core, featuring a central burial scene recreation, telling their stories, an exhibit area devoted to the scholarship and scientific investigation of the burial ground and the human remains uncovered here, African lives in colonial New York, and Our Spirit, which showcases the community activism that brought this visitor center into being. If you're facing the information desk, restrooms and drinking fountains are located in an alcove to the left behind the desk. The entrance to the bookstore is to the right and behind the information desk. The walls and display panels throughout the visitor center are painted with strong deep colors, green, purple, gold, brown, blue, yellow, and orange. Overall, the lighting in the exhibit area is subdued, with bright spotlights highlighting each of the displays. Above some of the exhibit areas, two-foot-deep curved sage-green panels are suspended to display backlit quotations in cream and yellow-gold letters. Throughout the visitor center, the majority of the photographs, most about one square foot, are in full color. Black signs 20 inches wide by 24 inches deep with words in yellow gold and cream letters are posted with most displays. Life-size human beings are depicted in two ways. At the burial scene, the figures are realistic three-dimensional mannequins wearing real clothing. In other exhibits, the figures are two-dimensional cut-out color paintings mounted on boards. With your back to the information desk, across 12 feet of open floor space, there are three maps of the African burial ground area. When facing the maps to the left at the far wall of this lobby is the 36-seat theater where you may wish to view the introductory 20-minute video, Our Time at Last, before you visit the exhibits. You will hear the video's audio description automatically when you're inside the theater and the video is playing. At this point, you might like to make one of three choices. First, you could move to the maps and press 102 for their description. Second, you could go to the far end of this lobby to see the video with automatic audio description. Third, you could go directly to the exhibits through the entryway at the left of the maps here in the lobby. The exhibits are introduced on the dark green wall at the far left with text and a map. Each audio description segment will end with this tone. 102 Lobby Maps, 1 and 1 quarter minutes. Here there are three maps, one mounted on a three and one half foot long table with an 18 inch deep slanted top, its front edge two feet above the floor, and two maps mounted side by side on the wall above the table on a cream colored background six and one half feet wide by five feet high. The tabletop map shows the Ted Weiss Federal Building, which occupies the block bordered by Broadway at the left, African Burial Ground Way, Elk Street at the right, Duane Street at the top, and Reed Street at the bottom. The African Burial Ground Visitor Center is at the left end of the map, and the outdoor African Burial Ground National Monument is at the right end. A dotted line indicates the sidewalk path along Duane Street between the two spaces. The two maps on the wall show the estimated historic extent of the African burial ground. The map at the right shows Lower Manhattan with a red-orange dotted line outlining the area of the African burial ground. The map at the left 
shows an enlargement of the area enclosed by the dotted line. The African burial ground covers the area from Broadway at the left to just beyond Foley Square and Center Street at the right, and from Dwayne Street at the top to just below Chambers Street at the bottom. 103, The Burial Scene, 3 and one half minutes. You are welcome to go inside the circular space established by the wall sections. You may, however, find it helpful to hear the description before you explore and touch the elements of the scene. This description matches the view of the burial scene when your back is toward the information desk in the lobby. In the center, there are five life-size standing figures of African adults and a girl gathered around two plain pine coffins resting on four logs, child-sized coffin stacked on top of an adult-sized coffin. The tapered coffins are positioned with their sides facing us and the heads to the right. The facial features, body shapes, and clothing match those of people who appear in the introductory 20-minute video, Our Time at Last, shown in the theater off the lobby of the visitor center. At the left stand two men wearing off-white and light tan, loose, long-sleeved shirts, cream-colored or brown knee breeches, white stockings, and black shoes. The older man at the left wears an off-white button sleeveless vest, and the younger man at the right wears a long pale red and off-white check scarf tied at his neck. The older man stands with his arms in front of him, palms up, and his face raised upwards. The younger man holds his hands in front of him, and his head is bowed. To the right, standing at the head of the coffins, an older woman leans toward the coffins, her arms reaching toward them, her palms upwards. She wears a dark red scarf with thin white stripes wrapped around her head, a necklace of off-white clay beads, a fitted olive-green tunic-like lace-up blouse with three-quarter length sleeves over a gathered collarless off-white blouse. Her dark olive-green full skirt is mid-calf length, and she wears black shoes. She wears a small brown linen purse at her right side, its strap hanging on her left shoulder and crossing her chest and back. An assortment of shells, beads, and seed pods hang from the purse on thin leather tethers. Two off-white ties hang from under her overblouse at her left side. To the older woman's right, on the other side of the coffin from us, stand an eight-year-old African girl with her arms wrapped around the waist of a young African woman whose left hand holds the girl's head to her chest. The woman looks down to the coffins, and her right arm reaches toward them. The girl wears a loose, off-white, shapeless dress to just below her knees, a brown-gray and light-blue striped shawl, and black shoes. The woman wears a scarf wrapped around her head, striped in pale reddish-brown, gray, and cream. Her overblouse, off-white with thin gray stripes, has a scoop neck and full long sleeves covering a gathered collarless off-white blouse. An apron in a checked pattern of light tan and cream is tied at her waist and covers the front of her mid-calf length full gray skirt. A triangular Muslim kerchief hangs down her back and she wears white stockings and black shoes. Remember, you are welcome to go inside the circular space established by the wall sections to explore and touch the elements of the scene. At either end of the benches just inside the walls, wooden bins hold removable boards printed on both sides with information about funerals and burials from the late 1600s 
1794. If you would like to hear the information printed on the removable boards, press 104. 104. Text from the removable boards at the burial scene. One and three quarters minutes. Gathering at dusk to lay loved ones to rest. Over 100 years from the late 1600s to 1794, the African burial ground was the setting for thousands of funerals like the one before you. In colonial New York, men, women, and children from Africa died almost daily of physical strain, malnutrition, punishment, diseases like yellow fever and smallpox, and rarely old age. Their loved ones buried them here with dignity and respect in ceremonies rich with traditions. The knowledge gained by those who have studied this place helps us imagine the scene that is displayed here in life-size figures and surrounding illustrations. Who is being buried? The mourners are burying a man and child who died in one of the many epidemics. Who mourns for them? Fourteen family members and friends are here, two more than the limit set by colonial law. In 1731, fearful of large gatherings of Africans, the city passed a law restricting the number of mourners to 12. Each mourner here risks a public whipping because he or she is breaking the law. What are they doing? In the moment before lowering the coffins, the group is blessing the dead. Their ceremony weaves together traditions from their African homelands with new Western traditions like Christian hymns. Why does this burial take place at dusk? In 1722, the city passed a law stating that burials had to be held at or just before sunset. Because all Africans in New York, enslaved or free, worked from sunup to sundown, their funerals took place after the end of the workday and before nightfall. 105. African Origins Display Case. Five minutes. Inside the shallow plexiglass case, seven feet from left to right and three feet from front to back, there are 14 artifacts and three color photos from West Africa. Across the bottom of the case are brief descriptions of the items displayed. At the left, a pale gray sleeveless collarless boy's shirt from Mali, a wide black panel down the center front. The shirt is 18 inches wide and 24 inches tall. Shirts like this one have been worn for centuries as everyday wear by boys throughout West Africa. To the right, a slingshot from Burkina Faso made from a slender yoked twig, 8 inches tall, its handle carved with a crisscross design. The straps in the shot pocket are leather. A Burkina Bay boy uses a slingshot to shoo away birds and animals so they won't pick the crops clean. Below the slingshot, a painted clay toy cow from Mali, two and one-half inches tall and three inches wide. Facing right, the cow has large horns and a large rounded hump on its back. The cow has thin white and red stripes and white dots. A boy playing with a toy cow might pretend he's herding cattle like grown men do. To the right of the cow, there are a silver finger ring, a cylindrical blue trade bead from Europe, and a brown ceramic bead from West Africa, one and three-quarters inches tall. For three centuries, European merchants traded guns, metals, textiles, and beads like this for goods like gold and ivory, and African captives. This African-made ceramic bead could adorn a necklace or clothing, or be strung in a girl's hair. Above these objects is a translucent yellow box and lid, 
two and one half inches in diameter and one and one half inches tall, holding a half dozen small beads. A teenage girl in the countryside might put her jewelry and personal possessions in this little goatskin box. Above the box is a color photograph of two Cuba children using sticks to roll tall, thin metal hoops across the sand. To the right of the photo, a child's square-bottom basket, woven of dark, honey-colored reeds, its bottom about three inches square, standing four inches tall, its round, open top six inches in diameter. A girl in Mali's Dogon region might play with this miniature basket, pretending she's a farmer like her mom. To the right. A lightly rusted silver-colored metal double gong from Benin and Western Nigeria. A thin handle, eight inches long, holds two side-by-side narrow cones, four inches long, with metal clappers inside. This percussion instrument is used in music and dance, and to alert the crowd when a person of nobility arrives. Below these two objects, a photograph of large blue and tan fishing nets cross horizontal poles, three feet above the ground. To dry in Elmina, Ghana. Below and to the right of the photo, three reddish-brown cylindrical Casamance fishing weights from Senegal, each three to four inches long and one and one half inches in diameter. These fired clay weights hold fishermen's nets on the bottom of the sea. To the right, there are three objects: a necklace, a pipe, and a pendant hanging from a cord necklace. Displayed as if it were hanging around a person's neck. The 16-inch-long bronze necklace is formed of three-dimensional triangles, each one inch tall, and composed of alternating strips and open space. The short smoking pipe from Benin is dark reddish-brown clay, three inches from its small bowl to the end of its stem. The pendant is a small silver-colored metal square mounted on a thick two-inch square of black woven fabric hanging from a necklace of five thin black cords. Bronze necklaces like these are made by Akan-speaking metalsmiths. They also made similar necklaces in gold for Ghanaian royalty. Both men and women use this traditional African pipe. A Muslim child might wear this pendant. It contains a bit of writing for good luck and to ward off the evil eye. Above these objects, a photograph of a dozen men, most wearing long, flowing robes in white, light blue. Brown or cream stand on small rugs outside a sand-colored adobe mosque in San Mali, preparing to pray. To the right, two gray-brown wooden children's writing tablets from West Africa, partly covered with characters written in black, with curved tops and square bottoms. The tablets average five inches wide and eighteen inches tall. Muslim children use these tablets to practice writing verses from the Quran at a madrasa, a religious school. To write another verse, they wash the ink off the tablet. One zero six, working on the dock's wheel, one and one half minutes. This flat, two-layered wheel, two and one half feet in diameter, stands upright. When visitors turn the wheel and back, information about working on the docks appears in the eight-inch circle cut in the front dark orange wheel. Enslaved dock workers hoisted and rolled loads off and on ships at a steady pace from sunup to sundown. This muscle-wrenching work often caused permanent damage to the head, neck, and shoulders. Barrels coming off the ships held dry goods and liquids. Some were filled with flour, rice, or tobacco. Others held molasses, rum, or wine. 
Dock workers handled barrels that varied in weight and size but were always heavy. One hogshead, or 63 gallons, of tobacco equals 1,000 pounds. One pipe, or 126 gallons, of cider equals 1,050 pounds. One bushel, or 8 gallons, of wheat equals 57 pounds. Some Europeans bought Africans just to make money by hiring them out to others by the day or week. The purchase price for an enslaved African held stable through the 1700s. A healthy young African male dock worker cost about 50 pounds, about 7,000 pounds or $14,000 in 2008. A female's market price was about 45 pounds, about 6,000 pounds or $12,500 in 2008. A bull in 1730 cost about 2 to 3 pounds, about 300 pounds or $600 in 2008. To hear about the exhibit to the left of the Working on the Docks wheel, an exhibit featuring Belinda, a domestic worker, press 107. 107. Belinda. Four and one-half minutes. Against a background of an eight-and-one-half-foot-wide red-brick cooking fireplace hung with dried herbs, wooden utensils, and a short, loose broom, at the center there's a cut-out figure of an African woman leaning forward at the waist, a wooden spoon in her outstretched right hand. Bent over, she's five feet tall and wears a plain, gathered off-white cap, a white blouse covered by an orange jacket flared at the waist with three-quarter length sleeves. A muted pink and light blue patterned apron protects the front of her full skirt of mottled light brown and off-white stripes. She wears pointed black boot-like shoes. Belinda, 1762. Belinda did domestic work for John Watts and his family in New York. But something about Belinda began to alarm the female members of the Watts household. According to Watts, she'd started to trifle about charms. Perhaps he meant conjuring or spiritual practices. So he put her up for sale. Watts described Belinda in his letter as a very good cook and a most necessary servant. As part of the same cutout, a young colonial girl stands close at Belinda's side, her back to us. Her auburn hair shows under her ruffled cap, and she wears a lace-trimmed, full-skirted, ankle-length, teal-green dress, a pink sash, and black shoes. She holds an upside-down doll in front of her. In front of Belinda, two cast-iron kettles sit on the floor. This text is on a sign in one of the pots. Even a simple stew required hours of labor, from killing animals for meat, to harvesting vegetables, to pounding grains by hand. Combined with the heat and danger of cooking over an open fire, cooking was grueling work. At the far right, a cutout figure of a young African girl, four and one-half feet tall, wearing a dappled tan shift that comes to several inches below her knees and black shoes. She carries a load of firewood in front of her chest. Text is printed on the olive green mantle above the fireplace and on three black signs attached to the bricks. In the mid-1700s, slaveholders bring more and more women and children straight from Africa, thinking that they will be easier to control. As fears of rebellion rise, shipments of African men from the Caribbean decrease. Slavery continues to involve resistance on the part of the enslaved and efforts to maintain control by slaveholders. Domestic work was difficult and heavy. Women worked endlessly for slaveholders and their families. The bodies of enslaved girls and women like Belinda were strained to the point of long-term injury. Skeletal remains show signs of extreme physical stress. 
The women pumped, carried, and boiled water, ground meal, churned butter, and lifted heavy iron pots all day. They did laundry, cared for all the children, cleaned, sewed, and spun. There was always work to do in the garden or tending the animals. At night, they put the house in order for the next day when it all began again. Slavery was also hard on children. Over 40% of those buried here are children, mostly under the age of two. African children were precious to their families, but they were only valued as labor by New York slave owners. Owners might keep one child to help with chores, but did not want to support more. When children got older, they were usually separated from their mothers and sold to live and work in strangers' homes and businesses, a hard life that began at age four, five, or six. While women like Belinda had to cook and clean and tend to their owner's children, they were given little food and no time for their own children. Poor nutrition and exposure to disease caused the deaths of many children of enslaved women. To the right, a photo of a partial skeleton in a coffin-shaped burial plot. Burial 39 held a child between the ages of 5 and 7. Analysis of the bones shows that the child performed heavy and repetitive labor for much of his or her young life. 108. Peter Williams Sr. Book. Two and one half minutes. At the left side of the display, a 10-page book with eight and one half by 11-inch plasticized pages is mounted on a stand two and one half feet above the floor. Among the images and text in the book, a copy of the handwritten proclamation of Earl of Dunmore, 1775. With this proclamation, the British offered freedom to any black person who fought on their side in the Revolutionary War. The British lost the war, but kept their promise, moving thousands of Africans to freedom in Canada, the Bahamas, and later to Sierra Leone in Africa. There's also an African class list of the John Street Methodist Church, 1795. This list shows that many Africans were active church members in the mostly white John Street Methodist Church. Peter Williams Sr. is listed third in the 28th Negro class of 1795. Though Africans had been worshiping in white churches since the 1600s, they faced discrimination. In 1796, many of the people listed here would branch off to form the historic African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. Next to a reproduction of the memorial and petition of the free Negroes and slaves in the city of New York, February 14, 1788, this explanatory text. In the 1780s, the graves of New York's poor were increasingly being robbed by medical students and doctors seeking bodies for study. To stop this offense, African community leaders submitted this petition. When it went unheeded, New Yorkers rioted to protest the grave robbing. As a result, New York State passed an anti-grave robbing law in 1789. A photograph of a full skeleton in burial 323. When archaeologists uncovered the man in burial 323, the top of his skull was in his arms. His skull had been sawed after death for an autopsy or medical training. Did grave robbers remove him and then rebury him? We only know he was buried with his head to the east and without a coffin, in contrast to most of the burials in which people were buried in coffins with their heads to the west. Next, the printed title page of an oration on the abolition of the slave trade. Peter Williams' son, Peter Williams Jr., became one of New York's best-known African ministers and abolitionists. 
He gave this speech at the African Church on January 1st, 1808, the day the slave trade between the United States and Africa became illegal. It's one of the first publications on abolition composed by an African. The next exhibit about Mary, an agricultural worker, is behind you. Once you move to it, press 109 to hear its description. 109, Mary, two minutes. This five-foot-wide display has a pale yellow clabbered wall at the left, a painted apple orchard scene at the back, and an olive green wall at the right. Enslaved African farm workers make up a quarter of the rural population outside the city of New York. Selling goods in the city allows them to visit family and friends, and sometimes to escape. On the clabbered at the left. Our labor was extremely hard, being obligated to work in the summer from about 2 o'clock in the morning till about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. The horses usually rested about five hours in the day while we were at work. Thus did the beasts enjoy greater privileges than we did. John Jay, African Preacher, 1815. At the center stands a cut-out figure of an African woman, five and one-half feet tall, her left hand holding the wide floppy brim at the front of her straw hat. She wears an ankle-length dark red dress covered in front with a full white apron. Patterned yellow and red cloth bound around her waist fastens a sleeping African baby to her back. She holds a long-handled hoe in her right hand. At her bare feet sits a 10-inch high basket, 24 inches in diameter, containing red apples. From a sign at the front of the display. Mary, 1707. Mary lived on a farm in Brooklyn, near the ferry to New York. Her owner's will dictated that she and her husband are not to be sold, and they are to have every Saturday afternoon to work for themselves. He left all of his other Negroes to his sons. It's likely that John Erson's sons knew Mary well, since enslaved women and adolescent girls took care of all the children. Besides doing farm work, like managing the dairy, enslaved women in the countryside had to clean, cook, bake, knit, sew, and labor at countless other tasks. 110. Colonial and City Laws Between 1681 and 1788. One and three quarters minutes. Some of the laws that affected Africans in New York are printed here. Words like slave, mulatto, master, and negro are taken from the original text. Some of the laws include 1681 to 1683. No slaves shall gather on the Sabbath or at any other time at any place in groups of four or more. Punishment is public whipping. 1702. Act for regulating slaves. Any slave who strikes a Christian man or woman shall be jailed for 14 days and receive corporal punishment. Masters may punish their slaves however they choose, short of loss of limb or life. No more than three slaves may meet together at any time or place, unless it is while they are at work for their slaveholder. Punishment is 40 lashes on the naked back. 1706. All children born of slave mothers shall be slaves as well. Slaves may never give testimony against a white person. 1708. Any slave convicted of conspiring to murder a white will be put to death. 1712. Any slave convicted of conspiring with others to revolt against whites will be put to death. No Negro, Indian, or mulatto made free henceforth shall be allowed to own property in the colony of New York. 1713. 
No slaves over the age of 14 may be out after nightfall without a lantern by which they can be plainly seen. 1722. Black funerals must be held during daylight hours. 1731. No more than 12 slaves may assemble for a funeral. Said slaves shall be approved by the dead slave's master. 1742. Every household is required to keep watch for suspicious nighttime behavior of slaves. 111. Transatlantic Slave Trade Map. One and one half minutes. Against a dark olive green background, this five and one half foot square map shows North and South America at the left and Europe and Africa at the right. Dotted lines in light pink show the transfer of raw materials and cash crops from North America to Europe and finished goods traveling in the opposite direction. Light green dotted lines mark the movement of trade goods from Europe to Africa. Dotted lines in light blue trace the movement of raw materials and cash crops from North and South America to Africa and the transport of captives from Africa and the Caribbean to the Americas. New York plays a major role in the transatlantic slave trade. Some 10 to 12 million Africans were captured and transported worldwide as part of the transatlantic slave trade from the 1500s to the 1800s. Enslaved Africans traveled the long and brutal journey by slave ship across the Atlantic to the Americas, also known as the Middle Passage. Nearly 7,500 entered America through New York from 1700 to 1774. New York merchants also bought enslaved Africans from the Caribbean, paying with grain, meat, and lumber. The trade created huge wealth for European and American merchants and plantation owners. If you turn so your back is to the map and move forward 20 feet, passing at midway the shackles and the illustration of tightly packed African men and women, you'll reach four reproductions of early images of the slave trade. You may hear their description by pressing 112. 112. Slave trade images. Two and one half minutes. To the right, overhead, this backlit quotation on a two foot deep curved sage green panel. They are us. They are me. They are you. Kajiatu Giallo, October 4th, 2003. On the wall below, against a dark olive green background, Four reproductions of early images appear in black or brown ink on light backgrounds. Text is printed on the background near each image. At the upper left, a slave trader holds an African man over the side of a wooden ship by his arms and legs. Two Africans swim in the waves below. Slave traders threw the sick overboard. This woodcut illustrates an 1832 article describing how sickly, distressed enslaved Africans were thrown overboard alive in the port of Rio. Ship captains, knowing sick Africans would not sell, avoided paying import taxes on them. Those who died at sea were thrown overboard as well. In the black and white engraving below, Africans sit close together on the deck of a ship. Ship captains packed Africans above and below deck. The journey by slave ship across the Atlantic, known as the Middle Passage, could last weeks or months. Some slave ship captains were loose packers, guarding against big losses from sickness. Others were tight packers. Crowding more Africans on a ship meant more might survive and turn a profit, even though many of them would die en route. At the upper right, a sepia-toned illustration of three Africans with wooden yokes. 
The oaks are narrowly forked tree branches stripped of their bark about three feet long. The fork of the oak rests around one person's neck and the straight end of the device touches another person's neck. Once captured or traded, Africans were chained or, more rarely, bound with others in wooden yokes. Below, an engraving shows 14 Africans, some seated, some standing, outside a peaked, flat-top building with a flag flying behind it. Some Africans captured other Africans for trading. Slavery was established within Africa before Europeans arrived there. But the African system of slavery allowed for family, property ownership, and eventual freedom. Still, some Africans from the interior regions kidnapped people and forced marched them to the coast to be sold to North Africans or white traders to meet their demand for cheap labor. 113, the site overlay, two and three quarters minutes. Clear acrylic overlays the map of the burials, providing orange lines and circles to highlight specific areas with orange panels with cream-colored text to offer explanations. At the left end of the map of the excavated burials, lines in a circle lead to the area under today's 290 Broadway building and link to panels with this information. Some old buildings destroyed graves. Graves in the area beyond these walls were destroyed by construction of buildings in the 1800s. In other places, a layer of fill 13 to 24 feet deep protected many graves. Graves overlapped each other. Used for over a hundred years, parts of the cemetery had several layers of burials. Some graves seemed to be deliberately placed on top of others, perhaps those of relatives. Some were buried without coffins. Only 10% of the burials were not in coffins. The northern area of the cemetery, used during and after the Revolutionary War, contained almost all the coffinless burials. Above and below the center of the map, panels provide this information without being connected to a specific location. Their heads were oriented to the west. Almost all the ancestors here rest with their heads toward the west. African New Yorkers made this their common tradition, even though many of their home cultures did not practice it. Each burial received careful attention. There is no sign of a mass grave, and each burial received individual attention. Many burials seem to be in rows or clusters, which may have been family groups. At the right end of the map, lines and circles lead to the area where today's outdoor African Burial Ground National Monument is located and link to panels with this information. Coffin shapes changed over time. The earliest coffins were probably straight-sided and tapered toward the foot. The shouldered shape came later, though straight-sided coffins continued to be used for many of the children. Descendants become activists. Construction and archaeological excavation moved ahead at the same time. Construction workers unexpectedly found and inadvertently damaged several burials. Outraged, the descendant community and others took action to stop further excavation and disrespect of the burial ground. If you turn to the right to the three-foot-wide bluish-purple wall with the two graphs and go past a three-foot-wide open space, you'll come to a nine-and-one-half-foot-wide by six-foot-tall backlit mural showing over 400 small photographic images of each of the burials uncovered at the African burial ground. Once you are there, Press 114 to hear the description. 114, the burials, two minutes. 
This nine and one half foot wide by six foot tall backlit mural shows over 400 small photographic images of each of the burials uncovered at the African burial ground. Although many of the photos are different sizes and shapes, there are 14 rows with 25 to 30 photos in each row. The photos are in different shades of brown, reflecting the soil of the particular burial site. Some photos show full skeletons and others show partial remains. Each photo includes a black and white striped archaeological measuring stick, a trowel, and a black sign with white letters identifying the burial number, location, and date. Below each photo, white letters on a black band indicate what scientists have learned about the identity of the person buried. The burials include 60 infants from 0 to 16 months, 77 children from 3 months to 15 years, 11 adolescents from 11 to 19 years, 31 adults with gender unknown from 16 to 62, 84 women from 14 to 65, 110 men from 16 to 65, 27 burials with remains undetermined, and four sites with no remains. Below the mural, a black sign with this text. Approximately 15,000 people are buried in this ground. The remains of 419 men, women, and children were uncovered when the site was excavated in 1991 and 1992. All were reburied with honor in the rites of ancestral return ceremony in 2003. These remains were just a fraction of the burials in the African burial ground. If every burial were excavated, this wall of photos would wrap the entire gallery. To the right of the backlit mural, the next exhibit is about the research which resulted from the discovery of the African burial ground. There are two parts to the exhibit, a touchscreen computer interactive station, and on the wall behind the computer interactive, a display of text and photos. The introduction to the touchscreen computer interactive station will play automatically, and you may hear the description of the text and photos by pressing 115. 115, The Research, 1 and 1 half minutes. Overhead, this backlit quotation on a two-foot-deep curved sage-green panel. We wanted to know things that had been hidden from view, buried, about who we are. Michael Blakey, Scientific Director, November 20, 2003. Along a 14-foot expanse of muted gold-colored wall, nine photographs and a black sign appear in a horizontal row five feet above the floor. From the sign at the right end of the row. Nearly 10 years of teamwork has helped us understand who is buried here and how they lived. This team of researchers included archaeologists, anthropologists, biologists, historians, and art historians, many of African descent. The questions asked by the descendant community guided the work. These determined activists and scientists created a new way to study past people's lives, honoring the contributions made by people of African descent without ignoring the circumstances in which they lived. The research team brought humanism to science. This new kind of research continues, revealing powerful information about our shared history. The nine photographs, some color and some black and white, each with a caption below, are mounted on light bluish-purple panels the photos show archaeological field work at the burial ground, laboratory workers, a glass-enclosed collection of items gathered as a shrine near the ancestors' remains in the laboratory, a meeting of historians, an archaeologist and an osteologist, 
volunteers conducting outreach, children examining a marble plaque, and protesters at a vigil. If you would like to hear a detailed description of the nine photos, press 116. 116, the research photos, four minutes. In the first photo at the left end of the row, a young black woman kneels next to a skeleton lying in reddish-brown dirt, brushing a bone with a narrow brush. Archaeological technician Sarah DuPont cleans a person's skeleton in a burial. Photographs and sketches of the remains are made before they're carefully removed, bone by bone, for study in the lab. In the second photo, 11 men and women, some black and some white, gather outdoors behind a barrier of yellow caution tape. Archaeology field director Michael Parrington shows the site to Mayor David Dinkins, Peggy King Yorde, architect and project planner with the city's Office of Construction, and Howard Dodson, director of the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture. Field work began in June 1991 and continued through June 1992. The third photo shows a large number of somber black men and women standing close together holding hands, their hands raised to shoulder height between them. Protesters take part in a 26-hour vigil at the site in 1992. Controversy about construction at the African burial ground sparked an unprecedented partnership between research scientists and community members and descendants. In the fourth photo, in a laboratory, two black women in lab coats and wearing surgical gloves measure a leg bone and write in a notebook. Cobb Lab technicians Allison Davis and Keisha Hurst measure a leg bone. Each bone of the 419 excavated burials was measured and described. They offered clues to the age, sex, and health of the individual. In the next photo, the fifth from the left, 18 black men and women, half of them in lab coats, stand around a laboratory work table. Researchers at Howard University's W. Montague Cobb Biological Anthropology Laboratory spent seven years studying 419 burials excavated from the burial ground, gaining knowledge that greatly advances our understanding of the people buried here. The sixth photo looks down on a glass-enclosed collection of articles, including a plant, tall candles in glass jars, a small animal's skull, papers, a rosary, several pieces of African cloth, a number of bowls, and more. African spiritual leaders kept a shrine near the ancestors' remains in the Cobb Lab, offering flowers, money, food, and water for peace between the ancestors and research team. The offerings were buried with the remains in 2003. In the seventh photo, two black men and one black woman sit behind a dark brown wooden table, paper spread in front of them. A white man sits in the background. Historian Selwyn Carrington, left, and Edna Medford, center, studied wills, baptism records, and sale and runaway ads to learn how African New Yorkers lived in the time the burial ground was in use. Archaeologist Kofi Agorsa, right, and osteologist Christopher Null, in background, also consulted with the historians. The eighth photo shows a black woman and man behind a table covered with literature speaking with two women on the other side of the table. Volunteers for the Office of Public Education and Interpretation, OPEI, hand out brochures about the African burial ground, sharing information and research with the public. OPEI was created by urban anthropologist Dr. Cheryl D. Wilson and funded by the General Services Administration. In the ninth photo, the last photo at the right before the sign, 
Outdoors, eight young black children stand and kneel to look at a white marble tablet lying in the grass. Summer day campers examine a marble plaque from Nigeria's president, Olushigan Mbasanjo. The plaque honors the ancestors and dedicates the African burial ground as a sacred site of African history and heritage. 117, reproduction case, four and one quarter minutes. This two and one half foot wide by seven foot tall, honey-colored wooden cabinet that sits flush with the wall has a glass-fronted display case above and below three drawers you may open. To the right, a black sign begins this display. Artifacts give us clues about how these early New Yorkers lived, but archaeologists found few items during the excavation of the African burial ground. Other than pins used to fasten cloth around the bodies for burial, only 20% of the people buried in the African burial ground were found with personal belongings. The items you see here are exact replicas of the treasured possessions found in the burials. The original items were buried again with the human remains in a ceremony in 2003. Inside the case, the background presents information about six artifacts in horizontal rows of photographs of the actual objects, three-dimensional replicas, drawings of the item's location in their specific burial sites, and text describing the object. In the first row, a dozen one-inch-long black straight pins are pinned in a horizontal row in a two-inch square of linen. Twenty-four pins were found in burials 335 and 356, where a woman 25 to 35 years old was buried with a newborn in her right arm. With these pins, friends and family members fastened the cloth they wrapped around the bodies of their loved ones. Each careful placement of a pin may have helped protect the dead on their spiritual journey. In the second row, a pair of round replica cufflinks, 5 eighths inch in diameter, are aqua with an arrow and dot pattern painted in gold. The original pair was found buried with a woman 25 to 35 years old in Site 371. These colorful cufflinks from the 1700s are enamel, the only items like this found by the archaeologists. They must have been dear possessions. Next, in the third row, a silver pendant, one and one-half inches in length, has an upper circular loop threaded with an oval silver bead, and a small loop on the bottom side of the bead holds a dangling teardrop-shaped pendant. The original was found at the neck of a child, three to five years old, in burial 254. Did the child wear this silver pendant on a string as a necklace during his or her short life? Perhaps a grieving family placed this treasure on the child at burial. The fourth row displays ten dome-shaped brass buttons, three-quarters of an inch in diameter, in two columns of five buttons each, whose originals were found at the hips and knees of a man 35 to 45 years old in burial 415. These buttons probably fastened knee-length wool pants with a front flap. The man who wore them is one of a small number who were buried in clothing instead of wrapped in a cloth. The next row, the fifth, presents a ring found on the left hand of a woman, 45 to 52 years old, in burial 310. The setting has a clear round bead of glass at its center and three small blue-gray stones at either side. Rings such as these were available throughout colonial America, Africa, and the Caribbean. Two were found in the African burial ground. The bottom row, the sixth, contains a photo and drawing of where the remains of a woman, 39 to 64 years old, 
were found in Burial 340, with strings of beads and cowrie shells around her hips and wrists. An oval or waist-shaped string of beads, three-quarters round, open in the back, 11 inches from side to side, is mounted in front of the photo and drawing. The many different beads include ones made of clay and glass in colors of aqua, gold, green, ivory, copper, and white painted with red and blue stripes. African women traditionally wore strings of beads under their clothing. In the 1700s, beads and shells like these were traded throughout Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. To hear about the contents of the drawers below, which you may open, press 118. 118. Reproduction case drawers. Five and one quarter minutes. Here, below the glass-fronted case of reproduction artifacts, are three drawers, each two feet wide, three and one-half inches high, and two feet deep from front to back. The first drawer, its handle two feet above the floor, contains a row of touchable beads made of fired glass strung on three rods from left to right, each six inches long. Most of the small beads are translucent in shades of pale yellow, gold, and aqua. On the bottom of the drawer, there are two small photos. At the left, eight off-white beads in two vertical rows of four, and at the right, an African man making ground glass beads, seated at a work table filled with traditional bead-making tools, including bead molds and packets of colored ground glass. The infant found in burial 226 were a necklace of fired ground glass beads. These beads were almost certainly made in West Africa, where they are still made like this. Other beads found at the burial ground were made in Europe. The second drawer includes photos and reproductions of three different artifacts, all under plexiglass, each presented in a horizontal row on the bottom of the drawer. At the back, there's a photo of a white clay pipe, which was found in the grave of a woman 34 to 69 years old, at burial 340. Africans commonly smoked pipes in colonial New York, but this pipe was never used. A loved one probably placed it in this woman's grave as a memento or to accompany her on her journey to the afterlife. At the right, a reproduction white clay pipe is displayed at an angle, its six-inch long stem toward the back of the drawer and its narrow two-inch tall bowl toward the front. In the middle of the drawer, photos of part of a skull with a coin in the one visible eye socket and a metal coin mostly covered with blue-green patina. There are also two reproduction coins, both a shiny bronze color. British coins, like this King George II halfpenny, saw regular use in New York in the 1700s. Two were placed on the eyes of the man in burial 135. They may have been meant to keep his eyes closed and protect him in the afterlife. Closest to us, the third row has a drawing of Burial 238 showing cufflinks found at each wrist of the 40- to 50-year-old man buried there and an enlarged photo of octagonal cufflinks, their embossed design obscured by corrosion. The two pairs of bronze-colored reproduction cufflinks are one-half inch in diameter with concentric rings of embossed patterns. The man in Burial 238 is one of just six people found with cufflinks. Fancier than buttons, cufflinks not only fastened cloth together, but might have also been worn purely for decoration. Like the first two drawers, the third drawer includes photos and reproductions of three different artifacts, all under plexiglass, each presented in a horizontal row on the bottom of the drawer. At the back of the drawer, 
Two photos are shown, a small dirt-encrusted shell and a contemporary African woman wearing small white shells hanging in her braided hair at the back of her head. The 13 actual shells mounted here are oval, each about three-quarters of an inch long, closed except for a narrow jagged opening along the length of one side. The shells are ivory-colored with shades of yellow and tan. The woman in burial 340 wore a string of cowrie shells and beads around her waist. Important trade items, the shells were probably gathered in the warm, shallow waters off Mozambique, Zanzibar, or the Maldive Islands, and shipped to West and Central Africa. The middle row has an enlarged photo of four slightly irregular buttons, a drawing of the remains of the man, 43 to 53 years old, found in burial 392, with markings indicating the buttons found at his shoulder, hips, and knees, and four white reproduction buttons, five-eighths of an inch in diameter. It is possible that decorative metal caps once covered these simple bone buttons. We can tell by the green metal stain on some of them. Eleven buttons were all that remained of a pair of pants worn by the man in burial 392. The row closest to the front of the drawer displays an enlarged photo of assembled fragments of a half-dozen thin, dark metal rings, a half-dozen reproduction rings, one-half inch in diameter, one cloth-covered, and a drawing of the remains of the man, 55 to 65 years old, found in burial 147, with markings indicating the seven rings and four pins found between his ribs and upper arm. Metal rings, perhaps from cloth-covered buttons, were placed in a pocket or sack pinned to this man's burial garment. In many African cultures, protective, healing, or magical bundles are pinned to the body. 119. Rediscovery Timeline Highlights. 3 minutes. Beginning at the left and moving right. 1991. Archaeologists and forensic anthropologists conduct test excavations and uncover a large site with many untouched human remains, preserved by up to 25 feet of soil laid down in the 1800s. They uncover and remove burials while construction begins on 290 Broadway. Outraged at the treatment of the remains, the African descendant community demands to be involved in General Services Administration decisions about how to proceed. 1992. The U.S. Congress, overseeing the General Services Administration, stops all excavation and construction at the site. Community members and descendants hold a 26-hour vigil at the African burial ground, affirming its importance as a spiritual site and its link to the past. 1993. Dr. Michael Blakey leads the African Burial Ground Project, a multidisciplinary research team of anthropologists, other scientists, and historians from Howard University and eight other universities. Working together, Howard University and John Milner Associates develop a research plan to respond to the scientific and ethical concerns of African Americans and others. Dr. Cheryl D. Wilson is appointed to lead the Office of Public Education and Interpretation, created to educate the public about the history of the African burial ground. She begins training a staff and a team of what will become over 350 volunteers. Candlelight ceremonies mark the transfer of the ancestors' remains to Howard University's W. Montague Cobb Anthropology Laboratory for research by the African Burial Ground Project Team. 1999. 
researchers finished recording and measuring the skeletal remains of the 419 individuals at Howard University's W. Montague Cobb Anthropology Laboratory. 2000. Federal reconsiderations of the project delay research and memorial competition. 2001. The General Services Administration puts reburial plans on hold in response to community interest and until research is completed. 2002. The General Services Administration establishes timeline for completion of scientific research reports and announces selection of five finalists for the African Burial Ground Memorial. 2003. The 419 ancestors' remains return to the burial ground during the Rites of Ancestral Return, a six-day ceremonial journey. Thousands of descendants and community members attend the departure ceremony at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Crowds gather to honor the ancestors in commemorative events along the way in Baltimore, Wilmington, Philadelphia, Newark, and Jersey City, ending at a final public tribute in New York. 2006. President George W. Bush designates the African Burial Ground as a national monument. It is administered by the National Park Service. 2007. The African Burial Ground Memorial opens. 2010. The African Burial Ground Visitor Center opens. 120. Rediscovery Scrapbooks. Two and one half minutes. Beginning at the left and moving right, there is one scrapbook, the touchable coffin, and then four more scrapbooks placed eight inches apart. The scrapbooks have eight and one half by 11 inch plasticized pages. The 12 pages of the first scrapbook contain reprints of newspaper articles with headlines such as Dig Unearth's Early Black Burial Ground and Hundreds Pay Respects for Their Ancestors in Burial Ground Vigil. Letters on letterhead of the State of New York and the City of New York, a news release from the U.S. General Services Administration, and a bill in the U.S. Congress. To the right of the coffin, the second 12-page book includes reprints of a petition from the Task Force for the Oversight of the Negro's Burial Ground, newspaper clippings with headlines such as, Burial Ground Yields a Treasure for Scientists and Historians, and African Burial Ground Made Historic Site. Written remarks from Mayor David W. Dinkins at a U.S. Congress subcommittee hearing, written reports to Congress, a Howard University news release, clippings and papers about the campaign for a commemorative postage stamp, and color photos of Foley Square Park. The third scrapbook has 10 pages containing reproductions of a newsletter from the African Burial Ground and Five Points Archaeological Project, newspaper articles with titles such as Volunteerism, the Cornerstone of the African Burial Ground, and Ghanaian Chiefs Honor Links to U.S., newspaper photos of the Chief's visit, a flyer promoting a community hearing, and an academic paper. The next scrapbook, the fourth, presents 12 pages of newspaper stories with headlines like History Lessons from the Slaves of New York and City's Role in Slavery Recalled at Rights. Press releases from the New York African Burial Ground Project, Office of Public Education and Interpretation, and the U.S. General Services Administration, announcements and programs for public forums, and the annual day of prayer for the African Burial Ground, and a four-page program and newspaper coverage of the African Burial Ground reinterment. The fifth and final scrapbook, in its 12 pages, includes newspaper articles with titles such as Protest Takes Angry Turn, 
and Building's Name Draws Uproar, an article from Archaeology Magazine, announcements of the exhibition of the five finalist designs for a permanent memorial, a schedule of events for Africans in the Americas celebrating the ancestral heritage, news releases and newspaper articles about Rodney Leon being chosen as architect for the memorial and the dedication of the memorial. The Theater You are now in the 36-seat theater which shows the introductory 20-minute video, Our Time at Last. You will hear the video's audio description automatically when the video is playing. Learning from the Past Computer Interactive, 1 and 3 quarters minutes. You have reached a group of three touchscreen computer interactive stations titled Learning from the Past, which provide information learned by nearly 500 researchers during the 13 years they studied this site. To explore this interactive experience with audio description, you need to use the touchscreen at the far right, the one closest to the case of reproduction artifacts. Once you begin, there are three different types of screens. The first allows you to select a question, the second answers the question, and the third type of screen offers more information. Each type of screen has a distinctive visual layout and method of operation. To hear how to operate a particular type of screen and about the screen's basic visual layout, touch the upper left corner as soon as the screen's content material begins to play. Once the operational information plays, you will automatically return to the beginning of the description of the screen's content. At the Learning from the Past Computer Interactive screen, touch the upper right corner of the screen to begin to explore any or all of the six questions about research into the African burial ground remains. Remember, you may touch the upper left corner of any of the screens to hear about its visual appearance and its operation. There are two parts to the research exhibit the touchscreen computer interactive station, and on the wall behind the computer interactive, a display of text and photos. You may hear the description of the text and photos by pressing 115. Our Spirit Video Screen You have reached a video screen, its center five and one-half feet above the floor, which shows a five-minute video, Our Spirit, about the rediscovery of the African burial ground. You will hear the video's audio description automatically. Reflections on the African Burial Ground Computer Interactive You have reached a touchscreen computer interactive titled Reflections on the African Burial Ground, which provides the opportunity to record a video of your own story in response to your visit or to view stories from people who have visited before you. The screen's lower edge is three feet above the floor, and the description of how to operate the screen will play automatically. If you would like to repeat the operational information on any screen, touch the upper left corner of the screen. Touch the upper right corner of the screen to begin. Mm -hmm.